Our society has lots of different ways of, of dealing with death. Most of the time with death, we just try and sort of hide it away. Our cemeteries and crematoriums hide behind tall walls and locked gates, out of sight and out of mind. But sometimes there isn't any hiding. And on those days, we have a bunch of different tactics to try and deal with it. So some of us, we make light of death. Woody Allen once joked, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. There it is. Thanks, guys. Other people, uh, they try to put a, a positive spin on death. So, uh, so Steve Jobs, who was the man behind the iPhone revolution, he said this. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And then here's the, the positive spin he tries to put on that. He says, and that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. But try telling that to a grieving family. Had you said something like that to Steve Jobs' own family when he died, aged just 56, I'm certain they would not have agreed with him that death is life's best invention. But if we're not busy avoiding it or making jokes about it or trying to spin it, or trying to spin it the rest of the time what we do with death is we, we dress it up in euphemisms. So we don't normally talk about people dying, we talk about people passing away. It sort of disguises the dreadful reality of death. And we see all of these different tactics in the songs that people choose for their funerals. So every year, the co-op release their top 10 funeral music chart. And, uh, and this is it. Hopefully you can, you can make out some of them. And, and do, do you see all of those tactics in, in the songs? This is, it's interesting that there, there, there are no hymns on that list. I think 2018 was the first year there were no hymns in the top 10. So we can make light of death. Or we can try and sort of spin it by cheerfully whistling along to always look on the bright side of life. Or we can uh, spin it with Ed Sheeran and we can sing along, euphemistically singing, you were an angel in the shape of my mum, spread your wings as you go. Or we, we can go with Eva Cassidy, somewhere over the rainbow, that's where you'll find me. It's interesting, isn't it? When death knocks, even people who don't believe in God still very often resort to sort of vaguely religious sounding cliches. And I, I, I get why we do that, because when we're in the shadow of the curse, we want to be able to say something comforting. When we feel bereaved, we want to feel something better. But ultimately, all of those things, they're just hollow, empty attempts to give hope in the face of death. Death really hurts. Lots of us are still feeling the, the rawness of that pain, having lost people recently. Death snatches away life. It rips away cherished relationships. Death is ruthless and relentless and cruel 
And in, in the cold light of day, there's no, that, that, that's not a laughing matter. You can't make jokes about that or, or put a positive spin on that or dress it up. But what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus Christ offers real, living hope in the face of death. Real comfort in the shadow of the curse. And we're going to see that even from this genealogy in Genesis 5. Now, I know, because I do it, when you get to a genealogy, you know, you're reading through the Bible in your morning devotions, you get to one of these passages, and there's this temptation, isn't there? How should I say? To... Skip it. I know. But even this part of God's word is true and useful written that we might have hope. So this morning, as Dave said, we're going to see the reign of death, but we're also going to see the hope of life. And actually, that's where we begin. We begin, first of all, by seeing that humanity increases through blessing. So follow it uh, with me, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And, and you can see, as we begin chapter 5, we start a new section in Genesis. They always start the same way. This is the account of dot, dot, dot. And this account takes us all the way from Adam to Noah, from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 9. And it opens with a, a recap. Verses 1 and 2, it's like watching a TV show that begins previously on Genesis. We're make, it's making sure that we know the story so far. And so we're taken back to the creation of humanity in chapter 1. We're told in verses 1 and 2, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He made them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. It's just a retelling of chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, almost exactly. Human beings created male and female in the image of likeness of God. And those human beings were commissioned to form the earth, to develop it and cultivate it, to build civilization. We saw a bit of that last week. And they're also commissioned to fill the earth. And the blessing of God is particularly connected to that commission to fill the earth. Human beings enjoy God's blessing to be fruitful, to multiply, to increase in number, to populate the world with more people made in the image of God. And verse 3 shows us, even outside the garden, that blessing to fill the world continues. Now, probably as Jemwin read that passage, and I deliberately asked her to read the whole thing, leave nothing out, it's formulaic, isn't it? The same thing over and over and over again. And the thing that probably stood out to you as Jemmy read it was those last four words of every single paragraph. And then he died. But there is one thing that happens in this passage more than death. And that's life. Ten times we're told about people fathering children. In this chapter there are sons and daughters everywhere. Chapter 5 is an explosion of family life. Human beings being fruitful, multiplying, increasing in number. A sign that even outside the garden, even under God's curse, we still enjoy God's blessing. Humanity increases through God's blessing. And with each generation, the image of God is passed down the generations. 
So we're told in verse 1, Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God. And in verse 3, we're told that Adam had a son in his likeness, in his image, Seth. So think about it. If, if Adam is made in the image of God and Seth is in the image of Adam, then Seth, too, must be in the likeness of God. So the likeness of God in humanity, it survives the fall. It still gets passed down the generations, which means every single human being that you meet or come across, whether they are young or old, whether they are inside the womb or outside the womb, regardless of their ability or disability or skin color or education, has dignity, worth. Value because they are made in the image of God. And that is still true even now, even after sinners enter the world. That ought to change how we treat people. Even your most noisy neighbour, the most troublesome teenager, the most selfish adult, no matter how sinful or selfish their behaviour is, They deserve to be treated with respect, with kindness, because they bear the image of God. But the image of God, it doesn't survive the fall perfectly intact. The image of God does get passed down from from Adam to Seth. But because of Adam's sin, the image of God that is passed down is fractured, it's damaged, it's distorted. So Seth inherits the image of God from Adam, but what he inherits is now a a fallen image. It's like um, if you go to the fun fair, if you've ever stood in front of one of those wacky mirrors, we still reflect what God is like, but now it's a distorted reflection. It's been corrupted. All of our hearts have been infected with sin, passed down from Adam. And so none of us reflect God as we ought to but we do still reflect and we still image God we're still blessed by God to increase to fill the earth but it's that distorted fallen image that's now passed down the generations and what that means is that humanity isn't the only thing increasing sin is too that's the second thing we see Sin spirals through wickedness. We're jumping into chapter 6 now. And these opening verses to chapter 6, they happen at the same time as chapter 5 is progressing. So chapter 6 verse 1, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth. That's, that's what's happening. Chapter 5, isn't it? So in chapter 5, human beings increase. And in chapter 6, at the same time, so does human sin. It's meant to be a a stark contrast to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, when God created everything, he only saw good. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. We're told about that. It's perfect goodness. But in chapter 6, God only sees evil. Verse 5. God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that 
every inclination of the human heart was only evil. All the time. It's a horrifying description of humanity, isn't it? These verses are here as a kind of trailer for next week when we get to Noah and the floods. They belong in this section. And what they're doing here, that they're giving us some context for what we're going to see next week. They're preparing us for what God is about to do. Giving us you know, the reason why God has decided to, to judge the earth in this way. Chapter 6 is showing us that sin is spiraling through wickedness. And God is deeply troubled by what he sees of the human race. That word, uh, deeply troubled, it's used again in Genesis chapter 34, when Dina's brothers find out that their sister has been brutally raped. They are shocked and furious, indignant and angry. That's how God feels about our sin. Now, we we need to be a little bit careful with the language here. And God isn't a human being. He's a spirit, so he doesn't have a a body. He doesn't have a heart or any other body parts. So when, when we're told his heart was deeply troubled, that's obviously not literal. But God is communicating with us in in human language so we can understand the deep anger he feels at our sin. And it's the same when God says that he regrets. God doesn't regret in the same way that we do. We, We regret things because we didn't foresee the consequences or because we only realize afterwards that there might have been a better way to do something. But that never happens to God. He knows everything. So it's not meant to imply that God is somehow surprised or or sort of taken aback or that he literally changes his mind about making people. God doesn't do that. Again, it's there to help us understand the depth of God's horror and indignation at our sin. His lament that it almost would have been better if he hadn't made us in the first place. See, what we see in chapter 6 is that God is incredibly patient with us. Incredibly patient with our sin and our rebellion. All of these people, thousands of years of sin. With me. With you. But his patience doesn't last forever. There's a time when God says... Enough is enough. And like you wipe a mud stain off your windows, that's what God will do with the human race through the flood. Wipe humanity off the face of the earth. And in chapter 6, we, we see the last straw. That provokes this judgment. That finally means God says enough is enough. And it's this slightly strange account of the sons of God and the daughters of humans in chapter 6 verse 2. Now these are complicated verses. There's lots of different interpretations. I'm not going to go into the details now. If you want to know what on earth is going on with the Nephilim, you can ask me after. Just say that. But what we should know is that 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 term, the sons of God, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe 
heavenly beings, angels, including Satan himself in the book of Job. And so I think what is being described here is fallen angels marrying and having children with human women. Now, I appreciate the moment I say that, that raises a whole lot of questions. What on earth is going on here? How does that work? Again, you can ask me about that afterwards. I think the New Testament in 2 Peter sort of uh, suggests that's the same thing that was going on here. The reason that's a problem, the reason this, this sort of weird intermarriage between fallen angels and human women is a problem is because chapter 3 is repeating itself. So at this stage in the story, humanity is cursed to die. There is no way back to the tree of life. Human beings will not live forever. But in chapter 6, human beings are still searching for a way to get life apart from God. And so I think what's happening is in verse 2, these fallen angels who, who, who live forever, they're eternal beings, they come to human beings and they say, hey, if you marry us, you can have another shot at, at immortality. You can live forever without God. How does that sound? See, it's the same offer as Satan offered to human beings in the Garden of Eden. You can live. You don't need God. Human beings, though, we're meant to multiply according to our kind. That's how Genesis 1 puts it. But just like in chapter 3, human beings reject God, they reject his word, and they try to find life apart from God. And the human beings in this passage, they're all too happy to go along with this brilliant plan. The fallen angels in, in chapter 6 here, they do exactly what Eve did in the garden. They saw something that looked good, that pleasing, pleases the eye, and they took them. We're meant to, to think this is just like chapter 3 all over again. Just like with the forbidden fruit in, in the garden. Human beings are seeking life apart from God by rejecting his word. And that is the final straw Because what it shows is that rebellious inclination to always go against God's word is so deeply rooted in the human heart that sin just spirals through wickedness. And the challenge of these verses is that we're no different. Our hearts are the same as theirs, that same rebellious inclination to always go against what God says. And so just like with them, so one day he will say to us, maybe our generation, it may be another generation. But one day God will say, enough is enough. And Jesus will return to judge the world. But just like with Noah in verse 8, you can find grace. There is grace from Jesus to escape the coming judgment. More on that next week. So sin spirals through wickedness. Thirdly, death reigns through sin. Back in chapter 5, death reigns through sin. What we've seen is that all of us inherit the image of God from Adam. And we all inherit a fallen image from Adam. But there's something else that we inherit Death, those four words, and then he died. 
Those words in chapter 5, they're like a drum. They beat constantly throughout the whole chapter. Eight times the death drum sounds and then he died. That's why I asked gentlemen to read the whole thing so we can feel this relentlessly repetitive drumbeat of death. So for each person we're told how old they were when they had their first child, that they lived so many more years after that, fathering more sons and daughters, that they lived this many years in total, and then he died. Now think about it. Strictly speaking, we don't really need that last bit of information, do we? They obviously lived a long time in the generations immediately after the fall, before the flood. But it's clear from the fact that there is a total That they all died in the end. And that's the point. They may well have lived a long time by our standards, but none of them lived forever. And if you read through the rest of Genesis, there are lots more genealogies to come. None of them include those words. None of them say, and then he died. It's obvious. Only here. That relentlessly repetitive formula is the point. We live, we may or may not have children, and then we die. Now, I realize there's more to life than that, but the point is that death makes a mockery of everything else we achieve. Death makes a mockery of our hopes, of our ambitions, all all our achievements. It doesn't count for anything if it all ends in death. Most of you here, my, my guess is, you probably don't, even know the names of your great-grandparents. If you know their names, you probably don't know much else about them. That will be the case for all of us one day. The truth is, within a few generations, we are all gone and forgotten. That is human existence. There's no great crescendo at the end of life, only a casket. And it just goes to show how bankrupt Satan's original temptation was. He promised Adam and Eve life. He told them, you won't die. But the wages of sin is death. Death is the payment for our rebellion against God. And so each of us inherits death from Adam because of his sin. Romans 5 says this, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned. Death reigned. Now I realise that might sound unfair to you. You know, I did not vote for Adam. Why do I have to reap the consequences of his stupidity? But it's worth saying, I just want to point out, that is how all of life works. All of us are born into families we did not choose. We reap the, cho- the consequence of other people's decisions all the time. Just look at the last couple of weeks. None of us, I don't think, elected Liz Truss or the former Chancellor. We've all been reaping their consequences for the last couple of weeks. And so when it, when it comes to Adam, we're like children born to a father who frittered away the family fortune, gambling. And we're all still paying the debt. 
Adam was the appointed representative of humanity. And so his fall is our fall. His curse is our curse. His death is our death. He's like the captain who misses the decisive penalty and we all lose. And Adam missed. But the truth is, it's not just Adam. We've all paid our own way when it comes to sin. We've all earned death's wages through our own actions. And so death is the last word in every human story. This genealogy then, it's a bit like uh, this Twitter account, which occasionally uh, pops up on my timeline. It's called the Daily Death Reminder. And it does what it says on the tin. Every single day, at pretty much the same time, the same message appears. You will die someday. Very cheery. That's the message of chapter 5. And, and you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I get it. I will die someday. I've, I've got the message. I don't need to follow the Twitter account, thanks very much. But what am I meant to do with that? What am I meant to, to do with this piece of information? And it's a good question because it seems to me lots of people misunderstand death's message. Let's come back to Steve Jobs. For Steve Jobs, the, the message that we're meant to take from death is to let it motivate us to make the most of our lives. It forces us to change, to, to do something, to achieve. But can you see that's just making the same mistake as the Garden of Eden? It's putting ourselves at the center of life all over again. To make it all about me and my achievements. That's not the message of death. We were created to live, but we die. Because we are under God's curse for our sin. And so the message of death is not achieve something. It won't matter if you die. The message of death is to get right with God before you die. The message of death is to get right with God before you die. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and, and, and you're not a Christian, we, we love having you here. And I just want to invite you for a moment to consider this. If the Bible is true, that there is a God who made us and loves us, but whom each of us has sinned, against and as a result stand under his judgment and curse and death but if that God has made a way for us to be made right with him not to find death but to find life through Jesus Christ if that could possibly be true that really is worth some serious thought isn't it because if if it's true that Jesus can take you through death into life forever, that changes everything. We'd love to help you think about that more if you want to do that. Death is the last word in every human story. Except for one. Lastly, we see that life wins through Jesus. I'm sure you can help but notice as Jeremiah read that passage to us, this mysterious character of Enoch. He is odd, isn't he? 
And it shows us, Enoch shows us that there is a different destination open to us than the dust of death. Verse 24, chapter 5, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. The New Testament sort of expands on that a bit. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Enoch avoided those dreaded four words. The only person who doesn't have at the end of his paragraph, and then he died. And how does he avoid death? By walking with God. Like Adam and Eve did in the garden before they sinned, like Noah after him. They walked with God. And Enoch shows us the hope of life. He is a very bright star in a very dark sky. Enoch had no funeral, no committal, no coffin, just life. But Enoch is just one bloke, just one star in the sky. Enoch doesn't really help us, does he? Whoop did do for Enoch. Walked with God and got to go to heaven, didn't have to die. Well, believe for Enoch. Not so great for us. Death still reigns, even after Enoch. And so it's no wonder, is it, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, Lamech is desperately hoping for some relief from life under God's curse. And when Noah is born, he, he's hoping desperately that Noah might bring some comfort from the curse. Well, maybe, I'm not sure. We'll have to wait till next week to find out. But I'm not sure that Enoch and Noah really are much hope for us, much comfort for us. But what Enoch and Noah do, they point us forward. Enoch and Noah, they point beyond themselves to someone else who does help us. Jesus Christ. Jesus, who through his own death defeated death for us, for you, who through his glorious resurrection rose victorious over death for us, for you. And so Jesus brings true comfort from the curse of death because through Jesus, God has something better for you than the dust of death. Life. And every single person is invited to trust Jesus and so begin that relationship of walking with God. And Jesus' promise is that for everyone who walks with him in life, he will walk with them in death. Through death into life everlasting. Walking with God is the only hope you can have for life that won't end in death. And that is real living hope. True comfort from the curse. Strong confidence even in the valley of the shadow of death. For all who trust in Jesus, life wins through Jesus Christ. For where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together.